My heart's desire and prayer for God, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is in the end of the law, so that they, there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in, the way, in, his, in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that it is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will ascend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear with not, without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. Consequently, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. I was on the PCC at Holy Trinity, and my role was um, move slightly. My role was coordinating our overseas mission support. And prior to that, um, I was the missionary secretary for 10 years at Woodcombe Baptist Church. And these verses were, in a way, they were what defined my role. They they were absolutely central to my particular ministry in the church. They were what I would quote to other people to get them involved with mission. Okay, that's great. So where do we start? Well, we start at the beginning of chapter 9, and it's the start of one of Paul's long asides. And this one is about Israel. So a couple of years ago, I felt like it would be really good to study Romans again, and I spent about four months going through it in my quiet times, and I bought a commentary, and I went through verse by verse. Um, And I was really surprised when I got to chapter 10, because I was expecting it to be all about mission. And the, the person who'd written this particular commentary said, It's not about mission. People always think it's about mission, but it's not really because it comes in the middle of these three chapters on Israel. I was quite worried because I thought, oh, have I got everything wrong? You know, I've spent the last 20 years of my life um, living like it was about mission. 
Um, so I thought about it a lot, and I concluded that basically I disagreed with the person who'd written the commentator. I think it is about mission, and I think it helps to really understand that Paul was a missionary. So I want you to imagine that Hudson Taylor was coming back to Earth and was looking at China today. Before, before we do that, can you just explain to those of us who don't know much about Hudson Taylor who he was? I'm sure everybody's heard about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a Victorian Christian um, who felt called to go to China. And he um, went out on a boat and um, he ended up serving in China for over 50 years. And he founded what was then called the China Inland Mission. And then later on that became OMF, which is a, much, a very well-known mission today. Okay, so you want us to imagine that Hudson Taylor is here in Bath today? Yes, and looking at China. And you can imagine that um, he would be thrilled to see the millions of Christians in China today. He'd be so excited to see after all that time of persecution how things had grown and changed. And he'd want to write them a letter to encourage them, just like Paul writes to the Romans. Um, and he'd want to visit them. And, and, then, and then he'd look at England and he's, he would probably have to double, double sort of look because he'd be so horrified to see where England had got to. The country that sent him and other missionaries all around the world, whose entire public life was built on gospel truths. Now look at it. It's lost and confused, chasing after myths and false teachers, and his heart would break for England, and yet he'd still be looking at China. And he's a missionary, so it's obvious to him what the solution is, isn't it? England needs to hear the gospel. And he would go back to those central truths, and he'd say the gospel again, and he'd say, this is what we've been sent to do. Just because he's talking about mission in the context of a particular people group, his own people group, doesn't mean that what he's saying isn't relevant for other people groups. It's just he's a missionary. That's what he does. He contextualized the gospel and those truths for that particular people group. And a missionary will do that today if you go and hear them talk. And I think that's what Paul is doing in chapter 10. I understand why Paul cares about Israel, but don't we know him as the apostle to the Gentiles? And he's writing to the Romans here, so why does he talk about Israel at all to them? Well, Romans is this amazing book that Paul explains great sweeps of theology in. Every time I do that, I move. I'm going to bring this back again. <laughs> great sweeps of theology. Um, and <clears throat> although he's, he's telling this to the growing and strong Roman church. He's never been to Rome, but he actually, knows, he actually knows some of the people who are part of that Roman church. And he really wants to see them again. And he'd love to visit them and see how their church is growing and encourage them and actually to be encouraged by them. 
And he's just gone through, in the previous chapters, some amazingly deep truths, which we've heard about in the last five weeks from um, John and Paul and Tim and Peter. Hang on, that that sounds like a a Beatles tribute band gone wrong. Are you saying that Tim is trying to be George Harrison? Well, he has grown the beard, hasn't he? So possibly. Yeah, I can see the resemblance. He's more like George than Ringo. He hasn't got the nose, I don't think, for Ringo. And he's a guitarist, isn't he? Um, You're trying to distract me. Paul has just said in chapter 8, I'm going to read this bit, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, isn't that amazing? And you can just see Paul stopping and drawing breath and the amanuensis is looking at him. (gasps) What's he going to say next? And then Paul, he just remembers Israel. And at the moment, Israel, huge proportion of them, are just that, separated from God and lost. And he just goes, doesn't that just contradict what I just said? And so he goes into this aside because he's got this huge sense of grief. My own people are separated from God. And this is the start of his bit in brackets. And really it's a whole sermon in itself. So I'm not going to talk about it in depth. But essentially he says, it's always been God's way that Not everyone is chosen. Not everyone is saved. Not all of Abraham's descendants were saved. And then we get another of these asides because he thinks, oh, some people might think that means I don't need to do anything because I might not be one of the chosen ones or they might not be one of the chosen ones. So I don't, there's no point in me telling them or worrying about them nothing to do with me, we've just got to accept how God has made us there's nothing we can do about it and that's where he sort of throws in this line about God is the potter and we are the clay which reminds me of a, of a song but, yeah. but more seriously what, he doesn't spend very long talking about the potter and the clay so what, what is the point of that picture? Well he doesn't spend very long about it here, he does talk about it in other places and I think what he's saying, at, and he's just throwing in the phrase like he thinks they'll know what it means Um, he's saying it doesn't matter whether God makes you a water goblet or a king's golden goblet your responsibility is to be the best water cup or king's goblet that you can be and in other places as well he also says and don't despise people that are made differently from you just because you're a water goblet doesn't mean you should despise the king's goblet and vice versa. And then he he doesn't even flesh that out properly here. He just whizzes back out of the aside and he says, but there's even a point to Israel's unbelief. There is a point to it, which is that it is part of God's plan for the salvation of the whole world. And then we come into chapter 10, and the section that we're focusing on this evening. Finally, you're going to start. 
It's only been ten minutes. Um, but it is quite simple. So I don't think it will take, me, take us very long. Um, so Paul comes out with these punchy sentences. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. It's universal. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need to wear special clothes. You don't even have to follow any rules and regulations. Not fundamentally. You just have to confess and believe, or believe and confess. It's amazing. And then we get these little riffs on the theme, sort of mini asides within a science. But how can they call? It's that simple. How can they call if they haven't heard? Believed. How can they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And Paul's heart is burning for the Israelites to hear and believe, just as it's burning for the Gentiles to hear and believe. But then we come to this bit, it always strikes me as a bit of a flaw in God's plan. Isn't it a bit daft of God to have his whole plan for the salvation of the world dependent on his church preaching to people? I mean, Tim says this all the time. Well, not all the time. He says it often. We are God's plan A. But he doesn't have a plan B. That's it. I find that really inspiring and utterly terrifying at the same time. But doesn't God also speak directly to people through dreams and visions and things like that sometimes? So does it, does it have to be preaching? Well, he does. <clears throat> and I know what you're thinking of. I'm not the I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of our old friend Malcolm Hunter. Malcolm is uh, 80 now, and he's a retired missionary. He worked in East Africa for many years. And he told the story of how many, many years ago he flew in by a very small plane to a landing strip that had only just been cleared in Ethiopia to a tribe that had never heard the gospel. And as he got off the plane, a group of tribal elders came towards them and the senior elder said, I had a dream three days ago to tell me to come to this landing strip today to meet, I think it was three people, however many people there were in the team, three people who were going to tell me how to be saved. (laughs) It's amazing. Malcolm's full of stories like that. And there are lots of other stories like that. I've got books of them at home. Well, actually, they're mostly in storage now, but but I have boxes of books of them. But what I find fascinating is that in a lot of these visions that people have, they sometimes see angels, they sometimes see Jesus, but Jesus tells them to go and meet someone or be in a certain place to meet someone that Jesus has sent to take the good news to them. So... Jesus does speak through dreams and visions, 
but it, it's to meet people who've been sent at the same time. And then the interesting thing, or the sad thing, about Malcolm's story was that these, this tribe, I mean, of course they're going to believe, aren't they, when they've had a dream like that, and then the man turns up with the story, and they said to him, how long have your people known this good news? And Malcolm said, <clears throat> well, nearly 2,000 years, actually. And they were horrified. Why has it taken you so long to come and tell us this? Yeah, and picking up that story, I mean, the tribe, once they had heard, um, I mean, this was a, quite a warlike tribe. They were always raiding cattle from their uh, neighboring tribes and generally getting into fights and killing and murdering people. But once they heard the good news and they'd started to follow Jesus, they realized not only did they have to stop doing all that sort of stuff, but more than that, instead, they sent out missionaries to the neighboring tribes who had been their enemies. Um, and as a result, the good news, the gospel, swept through a whole remote but, you know, quite amazingly large area of Ethiopia. Um, a church was born, and the central government in Addis Ababa, which I think was Marxist, was absolutely staggered that this ungovernable region had suddenly become peaceful, all because of Christianity. And that's the key point that you've touched on, which is that that tribe sent people out. They sent people to their old enemies. And that, tri that tribe was then converted, and they sent people out. And that's the heart of this passage. It's what I drew inspiration from for all those years as missionary secretary and then on the PCC. And Paul goes into this phrase which he quotes from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I think he is applying that to the preaching and the sending, the whole thing. I'm thinking of more worship songs. <clears throat> yeah, this passage is full of worship songs. Paul is saying people need to be sent. It's really interesting, the word apostle and the word missionary mean the same thing. They just mean sent one. They have different roots in different languages. I think one's Latin and one's Greek. But they mean the same thing. But we're not all called to go overseas. Some of us will be here in this room, I believe. Some of us will be called to go to other people groups, like Paul. But others of us are called to witness to our own people. Our own people need the good news just as much as other people. But we can all be involved in sending everywhere and wherever we are. I mean, why wouldn't we want to be part of God's plan A? Right at the beginning of Romans, Tim played us a video, um, which I thought was really interesting, with the magician Pan speaking, and he gave quite a strong testimony. Do you remember that? Yeah, um, I don't know whether you all remember that, but Pen told the story of a fan of his who was a Christian and who had stayed behind after a show to give him a New Testament and Psalms. Now, Penn is quite an outspoken atheist, so I think he was quite impressed that the man had actually stayed behind. But, but the thing that struck me about the video, and he, met, he said this phrase several times, he said that this Christian, even though he didn't believe what the Christian believed, he said, he was a really good guy. He looked me straight in the eye, and he seemed to care about me. So he said he was giving me this gift of the New Testament and Psalms because he cared. And then Penn said this thing, which still sticks with me, but I'm going to look at my notes to make sure I don't mess it up. 
How much do you have to hate someone, he said, not to tell them, um, some, if, not to tell them something that you believe is a matter of life and death? So in other words, if we know something that is a matter of life and death, how much do we have to hate somebody else not to tell them about it? And that's, I don't know about you, but I found that quite challenging. Um, because if we believe what we say we believe, then surely we all ought to be out telling everyone all the time. But Mary, I want to pick, uh, pick up on one thing, because I think you're saying that the sending is as critical as the preaching, that, and that it's part of being the beautiful feet, in Isaiah's words. So what does, and it's already saying sending is as important as preaching, but what does sending actually look like? Paul doesn't really say much about it in Romans 10. Well, I mean, Paul's mind works so fast. He sort of, he says it and he moves on. Um, We can see what it looks like in the book of Acts, though, and in others of Paul's letters. Um, I think sending consists of four key things. Prayer, financial support, commissioning, and then hearing back, hearing the reports back. So, first of all, prayer. So, in the letter to the Ephesians, a church which Paul was very close to, towards the end of the letter, he advises them how they should pray for themselves. And he, at the very end, he asks them to pray for him. And this is what he says. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That makes me feel a lot better about my own feeble attempts to declare the gospel because Paul seems to be saying that he is only this fearless apostle that we remember him as because of the prayer support that's being given, well, offered up for him. Absolutely. And I have loads of stories about how prayer has made a visible and absolutely time-critical difference in the mission field. But I could go on for hours, so I'm not going to go into them. Um, But Paul prayed for all the churches he knew of, and he asked them to pray for him in return. The second aspect is finance. And in another letter, Paul writes to the Philippians thanking them for their financial support. And he calls their support of him personally a fragrant offering. He says God will meet their needs as they have met his needs. And he actually says they are in partnership with him, in ministry, through their giving. And in Acts and other letters, we see him taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem and then taking it to the suffering church. And Mark preached recently on generosity, and I loved it and was also challenged afresh when he said, how many people have been saved because of how you give your money? What we do with our giving can be a fragrant offering, but only for furthering the kingdom of God it's just making us feel good about ourselves, or even worse, if it's done to show off to other people. And I don't think it's fragrant at all. So what about the third aspect then, which was commissioning? I'm, I'm kind of guessing you don't just mean having a nice sending off service. No, 
I see commissioning as helping someone work out their calling. I think it includes training them, uh, giving them authority in their ministry area or ordaining them. I think it means continuing to walk alongside them and helping them listen to God. And we see loads of examples of this in Acts. For example, in chapter 9, Paul has just been converted and he reminds me a bit of a water hose when you let it go. There's water firing in all directions. And he's a bit like that in Damascus. He's just firing off the gospel in all directions, causing all sorts of mayhem and havoc. And um, Barnabas comes alongside him and gives him a direction to point and introduces him to the apostles. And they send him off. And Barnabas even goes with him on his first missionary trip. I mean, that is real hardcore commissioning. <clears throat> and then, again, in chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul are in Antioch together in the middle of one of the missionary trips. And the leaders of the Antioch church are worshipping and fasting. So they're listening to God. And the Holy Spirit says to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the task that I've called them to. So they lay hands on them and they pray for them again and they commission them again to something that in a sense they're already doing, but they send them out again. So it's very much an ongoing process. And then the Antioch church is a lovely example of point four as well, because after they've finished that particular trip, Paul and Barnabas go back to the leaders in Antioch and they tell them all the wonderful things that they've seen happen, how God has been working. And I think that's really, really important, this going back and telling, reporting. Yeah, and I think in Acts you you see that a lot with Paul, don't you? Because he goes back to Jerusalem two or three times to report back to the the apostles um, what's been going on on his missionary trips. So he's not... He's not operating in a vacuum at all. No, no, and it's, um, it's really interesting because he, the church hears is, that first-hand testimony is such an encouragement and people know how to pray better and they recommission and they send out again and other people are encouraged to go out themselves. So you get this sort of virtuous circle as the news, as the reports come back, I think that's really important. And, and sometimes we forget to do it, and, and that's a real shame. Okay, I've got, I've got another challenge for you, though, because and it might be relevant for some people listening. Um, is all of what you've been talking about in terms of the sending, is that only relevant to super-Christians, you know, missionaries who are going overseas, vicars and the like? Um, I don't think so I think God calls all of us to different ministries most of them are not dramatic and most of them aren't overseas but some are Um, but in order for us to be most effective wherever God's called us I think we need to send each other I think we need to help each other work out our calling I think we need to train each other. The church should be a training ground for our daily lives. We need to um, give each other authority to pray for each other. We need to support financially where appropriate. 
Um, and I think we need to listen to each other and hear about what's going on in our lives and hear the stories of how God is working so that we can pray more effectively. In Acts, I mean, we even see this going even further. In Acts, we see this sort of proactive sending, being alongside each other, reporting back. We even see people rebuking each other, which is a bit daunting, isn't it? Paul rebukes Peter for going back on his acceptance of the Gentile Christians. And Paul and Barnabas fell out with each other at one point. I mean, Mark had let them down and Paul didn't want to take Mark with them again in case he chickened out again. And Barnabas said, oh, go on, give him another chance. And Paul wouldn't agree. Barnabas took Mark off and did his own thing. Paul did his own thing. We never find out the rights and the wrongs of it. What we do find out, though, is that many years later, Paul also forgave Mark and called him his son in the faith. So, so we know that um, God was working through that circumstance. So this working together, this encouraging, this commissioning, this training, it's not easy, but it is exciting. And this, from, this takes me to another passage, which is really, really one of my favourites. From my point of view... Whether you're called a missionary or not is entirely a question of geography. Jesus sent his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which I understand to mean Jerusalem, where they were then, that day. Judea, I see as representing their people in their land. But they were also called to be witnesses to the Samaritans, which are other people groups, quite distinct from the Jews, but they live in the same place. So other people, different from yourself, who share the same geography. And then, only then, after all those other layers of witnessing, to the ends of the earth, and that has the same meaning today. So do you call yourself a disciple of Jesus? If you do, you've already been sent. You've been sent where you are to be a witness to the good news. If we believe those songs that we sang earlier, then how can we not share that? God may call you elsewhere and then we are to be a witness in just the same way. Missionaries are just the same as us doing exactly the same thing. Just geography makes all the difference for the name. Amen. That sounds like it could be the end. <laughs> uh, um, well, have we got time? We're deep in the middle of the deepest dream in inception. Um, I'd quite like to come out if we can, just so we get to the end okay. of the brackets. I'll be quick. Um, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And it's like the trigger word. He wakes up and he remembers what he's talking about. And he goes back to the topic of how God is going to save some of Israel. There's always been a remnant, he says, that's faithful. And then he goes into chapter 11 with this astonishing metaphor, which I really think is worth unpacking because I think it sheds light on God's vision of the kingdom. And that's the metaphor of the olive tree. And I love this for lots of reasons. Um, 
I love it for the fact that it's a horticultural technique which we still use today. And we still graft things in. And, and I, I feel it's like a link between us, the people today, and the people then. We're just the same. We're using the same technology. We're using um, grafting of plants. And some people like reading Greek poetry. Some people like digging up things out of the ground. I like finding out about technology and science. Um, that was a long time ago. I'm sure it, it's a really nice gardening image, but it's never really... Me- and, and actually, we haven't read it this evening, so if you, if you want to look at it, it's in Chapter 11. But it's never really meant that much to me, other than saying the Gentiles have been sort of stuck into an older tree, which was Israel, and it's possible that Israel might get stuck back in again. But well, I'm guessing that I'm missing something. Well, neither of us are gardeners, really, are we? But my dad was. <laughs> so, um, I think... if. A gardener today grows the root stock plant to be hardy. That means disease resistant and weather resistant. It has deep, strong roots that go a long way down. It gets water from a long way down. And that's the picture of Israel. Um, Israel has a really deep relationship with their father God. He's cultivated them, not just over years, but millennia. But one plant only produces one type of fruit or flower. So the gardener looks for other varieties which have either sprung up wild or he's developed himself by cross-fertilizing, but they may not have very good roots. Their stems might not grow straight. They might be prone to disease. So he cuts out a stem of the hardy plant and he cuts in a stem of the variety and the hardy plant represents Israel with this deep relationship with the father and the the variety that is grafted in and then grows and benefits from all those deep roots that's the Gentiles and so the gardener ends up with all the varieties the fragrances, the colours the flavours just amazing picture of the kingdom of God it explains why God worked through one people but his plan was always to have all varieties and colours and flavours of people in his kingdom and I think that sort of rounds this whole section off beautifully so is that the end? well it is more or less the end Um, so Paul has I'm just going to sum up Paul has, in the course of a a few nested asides, he has said how sad it is that Israel doesn't know the wonders um, that he's talked about in chapter 8. He has said that that's part of God's plan to save the whole world. He has presented the gospel in the most concise way imaginable. He has defined the church's mission and told us that God's plan is to make his kingdom full of different colours and varieties, every flavour and fragrance of person. Just underlining the importance of um, our witness throughout the world. And he's just left in awestruck wonder. So if you don't mind, I'd like to read the doxology because what he's saying is the gospel is simple enough that a little child can understand it, but it's complex enough 
that a genius could study it and be thrilled by it forever. So uh, where's this doc- doxology? The end of chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So shall I, I'm just going to close us in prayer.